This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with strength and conditioning coach for a Cat One Academy, Tom John. The Hartbury graduate discusses the benefits of multi-sport at the younger ages and through the growth phase, as well as the effects of birth quartiles on academy football. I hope you enjoy. TJ, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, all good. Have you had a bit of time off for the summer? Um, yeah, I've been away to Thailand with my mates, but yeah, apart from that, been planning for next season. Okay. So, so yeah. how's the planning for next season? Yeah, really good. We've got like 10 days now until we start back, so just raring to go. But yeah, everything's set and just looking forward to getting into it, yeah. How long will that planning process take in terms of doing the off-season? Um, I think the first like two, three weeks is more like a reflection period of last season, things we've done well, things we didn't do well. Uh, we met as a department to kind of just thrash it out and have a conversation about what we did. Um, and then as soon as that's done, just get into planning for next season because you know what you want to change or you know what you want to make better. Um, so yeah, it'll be like three weeks of reflection, three weeks of planning, and then back into it. So I guess probably should explain what exactly is your job? Um, so I'm an academy strength and conditioning coach. My age groups that I work with is predominantly under 12s and 13s this season. And then I've also got the foundation phase, which is the 9s, 10s, 11s. Um, but then I will assist the other guys with the 14s, 15s, 16s. So uh, there's four of us and three interns. We'll, walk, we'll work between the whole 16s right down to the 9s, but predominantly me is under 13s and younger. Okay, so it yeah. must be quite enjoyable having the working with the nine-year-olds all the way up to the 16. Oh, yeah. Like, even off during the off-season, we've had plays in for, like, rehab purposes and even older lads, like the 18s, because we can dip into that as well. Um, and the challenges you face between having a nine-year-old and a 16-year-old, it's quite exciting because you'll come in one day and you'll be trying to get a 16-year-old to run or work really hard. And then two minutes later, you've got a nine-year-old that is full of energy that you don't have to say anything to because they're just buzzing about. So, yeah, it's quite nice. Okay, so in terms of physiological differences and stuff it's yeah. quite a big disparity between those how does how do your views and stuff change in terms of what you need to work on the players yeah. like work with the players or yeah I, th- I think the, the most obvious answer would be like probably how sport specific it is so with our 9s, 10s, 11s probably 12s as well it's very much fundamental movements uh, multi-sport key skills just really trying to establish those motor patterns to so they can then go on and um, become physically good at anything, pretty much. It's not really that football-specific. Um, we will always have football in mind with like the movements that we do, say, in our agility games or dodgeball games. But um, at that age, it's more about the whole the overall approach. Um, when they start going 13s, 14s, through that kind of like growth phase, then it will become more maybe position-specific or strength demands, speed demands, aerobic demands. Um, you'll get a lot more detailed in that regard. Um, but I'll say as an overall picture, our philosophy th- throughout it all is just as many different skills or movements or ways that they can adapt and move around the pitch is kind of what we aim for. Okay, so obviously, I assume you have network with other clubs and mm-hmm. stuff. Is that a principle that you think a lot of other clubs share? Um, I think I think it's something that a lot of other clubs are getting towards. I was just at a conference last weekend, Child of the Champion, and there was like, some guys from like Arsenal, Leicester, different places there. Um, and the multi-sport kind of uh, foundation is is building pretty much everywhere. I think you'd be surprised if you do, 
I'd be surprised if they didn't go to an academy now and with their youngest players like that, 12s and younger, they weren't doing some kind of multi-sport curriculum or playing rugby, playing tennis, judo. There's like a lot of fighting stuff going on now. Um, I think that's becoming more of the norm, whereas we've been doing that probably for the last four, five, six years. Um, and then, yeah, I guess as they get older, 13s and older, that's where maybe the clubs go off on their own routes a little bit. Um, yeah, and it's specific to the club. Um, but like I said with us, it's, we have that kind of speed, strength, still that movement underpinning um, kind of focus, really. So why do you think clubs are moving more towards the multi-sports stuff rather than like early specialization? Yeah, I think it's, I suppose, partly down to the research that's coming out now. And also when we look at case studies, like there's a lot going on about Roger Federer at the minute and an interview he's done. But when he was a kid, he'd done skateboarding, um, basketball, football, you, you name the sport and he'd pretty much done it. Um, and you look at his injury rate and how good he is at his sport, it, it's quite a good kind of case study. Um, and I guess more that we're talking, or more we're talking to the players at 18s and the players that we can see that's come through the system, the best movers, the best um, players are reading the game or the players with the best spatial awareness, they have come from the background of whether it's just playing in the streets of parkour or different kind of things. Um, that's really kind of showing right now. Um, so yeah. So, so bearing in mind that obviously you got you and you guys are quite big on the multi-sport stuff, you probably find it difficult with academy systems having it. Well, it's quite a lot of football based, isn't it? It's not as yeah. much time to be able to go and explore other avenues. I mean, yeah. if I look at myself as a kid, I would spend a lot of time doing other sports, particularly when I was particularly young because I wasn't in an academy. So I trained mm-hmm. Saturday morning, played Sunday, and the rest of the time just did whatever I wanted. Like, yeah. I remember having bike races or climbing trees and stuff like that. Um, when I got a little bit older, I played rugby, cricket and stuff during, during the summer or yeah. athletics and that type of stuff. Whereas the demands, particularly that the EPPP, I guess, place on academies in terms of expectations to contact hours to all that type of stuff, must be challenging for you guys in terms of you probably don't think that's what's best for the kids in their development. Yeah, maybe this is a personal view, but I kind of... It becomes difficult when we want to when we want them to do as many different sports as we can and go out and play with their mates as much as they can and go and climb a tree or get their skateboard or just go down the road. When there's that commitment to training, like three nights a week, game on the weekend, when you take into account the travel time in between, then the school as well, it does limit that time that they can do it. Um, what we try to push quite a lot is when they have PE in school, do as much as you can. So if the PE teacher says we're doing some random netball game today, get fully involved, put your all into it. Um, We do set them stuff to do at home. So whether it is, can you go to a tennis club, athletics club, or we give them uh, key skill challenges or movements that we get them to send into us, um, just again, to top up those skills. Um, And then, yeah, when they are actually with us, I'd say with the nines to twelves of the three, up to three hours they have with us a week, that is 99% 99% of that is multi-sports. We'll be playing something random or something skill-based with them. Nothing to do with football. It might look a little bit like football with the movements and stuff, but just completely new environments and, yeah, skills, movements. Okay, so it's got obviously quite quite good that um, different clubs are trying to kind of move that way and have different mm-hmm. sports. Do you think there's anything we can learn from other sports in terms of strength condition stuff? Example I give, I watch tennis, for example, and a lot of their movement patterns when they're doing strength conditioning seem quite prescribed. So they'll go, okay, we're going to work your footwork patterns from middle of the court out to the tram lines, 
you tend to hit a shot back in yeah. again. Um, are those things that you think would transfer to football or do you think there's things that football could teach other sports? Yeah, I think in terms of that, there's definitely a way that football could use tennis and tennis could use football. Um, and I know just from people I know that work within um, the Tennis Association, the LTA, they themselves are trying to ch- kind of change their ways of it's not just that shadow play or it's not that specific movement and pretending to play the shot. They do want to make it a bit more variable and a bit more creative in terms of the player making that decision rather than knowing that I'm going to go three steps to the right, pretend to hit it, turn to the middle. It's going to be more open kind of open case drill where they're not going to know which way they go in or they're not going to know what footwork they're going to need. Um, so I'd say all, all sports at the minute, I think football's in a good place in terms of what we are doing within our academies. Um, I think other sports are probably looking towards us. Uh, we're kind of gifted in a way that we have the lads from so young, right till they're 16, then 18, and then hopefully into the first team. Um, so we've got the structure there that we can put in place exactly what we want in a way. Um, but no, I think, yeah, football are in a good place. What challenges do strength conditioning coaches face in terms of, like in a rugby scenario, for example, trying to put on weight or trying to teach technique and stuff yeah. players that maybe are a little bit too young to be going through that process. Yeah, process weirdly again, in that conference I went to, I had a discussion with some guys from like uh, Harlequins and Gloucester Rugby about those issues because I've spent a little bit of time in uni with uh, Gloucester Rugby and uh, coming from a football background, I always found it difficult of, within that football environment, we're quite careful in respect of if we don't think the movement's okay, we'll regress it or we'll put it in a controlled environment where there's no load or no, not too much complexity to maybe work on that. Whereas with rugby, if you did that, they're then maybe not set up for the game. There's an injury risk in that game because they haven't uh, lifted enough or they're not strong enough. Um, so that's definitely an issue that rugby has in terms of do you make that movement better and then maybe put them into the game a bit vulnerable or do you just load that movement so that they can meet the demands of the game? Um, and where rugby is slightly different is they'll have their lads, and I'm speaking generally, but in their academies, maybe the youngest 14, some will just come in at 16 because of the school and the county setup, um, which I guess could be a blessing with the stuff they're doing at school because they'll still be involved in their football teams and their cricket and their basketball, etc. Um, so the difference is, I suppose, the time they come into the academy is a lot older um, and the demands of the sport is so physical that I don't say shortcuts, but sometimes you're going to have to make a quickest path to, to what you need from the game, I guess. So, yeah, that's quite interesting in terms of the demands for them isn't mm-hmm. so much developmental because obviously you get injury risks yeah. for, for those guys, which aren't necessarily the same. No, but yeah, even from like, I don't know what age they, they do tackling, but if you take a 13-year-old, somebody that's born in September versus somebody that's born in August, you've got 12 months on them, they could be a lot bigger. Like we, we all know 13-year-olds year old, that look like men and 13-year-olds that look like 10-year-olds and they're playing against each other on Saturday. So there's a big risk there. So it, yeah, you've got to weigh up. Okay, so that probably brings me quite nicely around to this bit. So I don't know if you saw a picture on Twitter, this is where I saw it, picture of a Villarreal kid who was a dot, I think it was under 12, so he was a bit of a dot, against an under 12 player from Sevilla who was massive. Yeah. The disparity, I think the Sevilla kid was probably double the size yeah. of the little Villarreal kid. Regarding like tracking of uh, predicted heights, mm-hmm. 
bioage, all that type of stuff. How is that actually tracked? And so, yeah. Try to basically try and explain to me exactly what bioage is and that yeah. um, means and stuff. There's a number of methods that you could use, I suppose, in terms of working out like predicted out like amateurity. Um, my experience with I'll stick to is the Camish, Camish Roach uh, approach, which is pretty much using your parental height, your current height, and the time of when you're taking that measurement. Um, so it gives you a prediction equation that predicts your adult height or a range of adult height um, to then where you can take your uh, most recent measurement and work out how far from that you are, um, which is there where you can create a percentage. So, for example, if I'm going to be 6'2 and I'm currently 5'8, that'd be a percentage of how close you are to, I don't know, off the top of my head, um, how far away you are from that. And then if we take our under-14s or under-15s age groups, you could have some that are at 95%. They're nearly fully cooked. They're nearly at their predicted height. And then you could have some that are in their late 80s that they've still got quite a lot of growing to go. Um, so that's the measurements that I'm used to using. Um, and they can tell you quite a lot about which players you maybe need to give more of a chance to or players that perhaps in that age group, it's just not a fair competition. So you might have to play an age group down or an age group up. Um yeah. Okay. So, in terms of that predicted height, how accurate are those measurements? Um, in terms of so, from twelve and younger, um, I don't don't actually know the numbers off the top of my head. Um, there is a range that is given. I think it's a fifty percent. Um, yeah, I know from twelve and older that you get ninety percent um confidence intervals. Where, yeah, I I don't even know. I just know as you get older. It becomes more accurate, yeah. So, I guess in, in terms of the coaches, the difficulty yeah. then becomes mm-hmm. possibly a late maturer who's quite small there, yeah. quite young in their bio age against maybe a very early developer um, in and then high bio age and stuff. Now, that I'm assuming is just physical development in yeah. terms of purely what they've done. Yeah, so. In terms of maturation, you can have sexual, somatic, which is what we're talking about, and also skeletal. Um, yeah, that is pure measurements and that maturation. There's other physiological systems that's going on that they're, they're not far apart, um, and psychological as well, mental is another one. Um, but we can't say because he's the most physically mature, because he's an early mature, for example, but he's still relative age, he's still born late in the year group, it doesn't mean he's psychologically also early. Um, so yeah, you've got that kind of complexity to the argument as well of he's really physically mature, let's play him up, but actually he might not be ready for it because he's born in August, he's 12 months younger and more from the age group above. Um, so you've got that argument involved in it as well, yeah. I think if you look up abroad, I know I've seen some statistics come out, um, get on social media and stuff, that does highlight the fact that a lot of your... Um, academies abroad are made up of their Q1s if you yeah, like, yeah. So January, February, March. Do you think that the academy system in the way that it's built at the minute kind of leans to more uh, more towards those Q1s and those early matures and stuff? Or? Yeah, I think it all pins down to like everybody wants to win, I guess. And even though different academies have got within their structure that it's not about winning. Um, it's about how many players you can get in the 18, scholar, first team, etc. Um, it is still quite hard to go like a whole season of losing the majority of your games and saying that's okay. Um, so I guess there's that argument with the staff in terms of 
we've got all these small players or these Q4s, but we're getting bad every weekend. Where's the development there for the lads? Um, and again, when, say for the recruitment, when you're scouting a player, you might have no information about that player um, in your Sunday league game. So you might think, I really like the look of him. Then you find out he's a Q1. Like, it might be obvious if he's massive, but there's no way of knowing that unless you've got his date of birth right in front of you, which I don't, don't expect that they get that. Um, but yeah, they, they, I think right now, compared to probably five, six years ago, there is more of a trend of a better proportion group from Q1, 2, 3, 4. But if you took all the academy lads within the UK, even there'd be a bigger percentage within, within that Q1 bracket. Okay, so bearing that in mind, if you were a scout, mm-hmm. oh, it's a big hit. Yeah, yeah. What thing would you maybe look for from? I would try the, to from the. I guess from the little ones, we're probably looking at yeah, the other people coming. Like even without the little ones, because if somebody's big, it doesn't mean they're early or late or relatively old or late. It could just be a big lad. Um, I think I would try to shut out any, especially with the young ages, at let's say nine to twelves. I try to shut out any physical advantages. So if he's running through the whole team, is that because he's technically good and his footwork is great or is it just he's shrugged a lot of people off? Um, so I would really look at how technically good is it? Is this player? How well can he move? Is it quite robust? Um, yeah, I think that my two points would be technically how good is he and how well does he move? Goals yeah, goals. because like I said, you might have the biggest lad on that. And I remember back to when I was playing, the biggest lad we put him up front and he scored six a game. And it's because he could kick the ball the hardest, kick the ball the furthest. And if you put it in the air, he's the only one that could head it. Um, but he wasn't a good footballer, but he was effective at doing that. Um, yeah, and who, who knows what his potential is. Okay, so looking at predicted heights and stuff, we said as, obviously, as you get a little bit older, they become a little bit more... Um, accurate. Accurate. Do you think there's a place, and this wouldn't be a coach's base, it's obviously mm. a parent's base, but for a parent to inform their child of the fact they possibly might be small mm-hmm. or on some occasions too tall, mm-hmm. so possibly wouldn't have a career in that sport now. I'm not using football as an example, but yeah. obviously the disparity between like a goalkeeper to a left winger. Yeah. You've got a massive range in heights. The example I'd probably give if you look at the NBA, the average height of uh, the NBA player last year was six or seven. Yeah. Now they've got one player uh, called Isaiah Thomas, who I think is five nine. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the players in the top league yeah. of basketball is going to be plus six foot. Yeah. Now, if you've got a child who is constantly saying to you, "I'm going to be a professional basketball player. I'm going to go and play the NBA for." Mm-hmm. I don't know, the LA Clippers or New York Knicks or anyone like that. Yeah. Do you think there's a time where a parent needs to sit their child down and say... Yeah, I think... I, I'd probably say two things. I'd say, yes, it is. it can be helpful for the parent to tell the child. Like, let's be realistic if uh, someone's predicted... Or say, let's say mum and dad are 5'5 five five and 5'2 five and the son's predicted, let's say, 5'6" he's probably not going to be a goalkeeper. So the parent could tell the child, look, play outfield. You've got more of a chance if that's what he wants to do. Um, and then what I'd also add to it is the game changes so much that for our under nines, tens, elevens, I don't think we could say that in eight years time or whenever they're going to be in the first team that a 
five foot seven, five foot eight centre back isn't going to be okay. Like it could be. It could be the way our game's going is becoming less and less physical by the game. Um, there might be that the demands are completely different. Um, so I think football's a difficult one. So from my perspective, I don't think you could you could say don't don't need a footballer, for example, because yeah. just the differences in terms of physicality on the yeah. pitch. Like if you look at Kante, for example, and then Tom Huddleston. Now, they're two mm-hmm. centre midfielders, played four technically, and that's Jorginho's decided he's going to have a gig in there. <laughs> why, why he's done that? But they're very different physically. Yeah. So you could, you know, heights and weights and all that type of stuff. Like less said, important. Football, yeah. Less important. It's just, I think in some sports, and it, is it is it worth a pair yeah. of saying so, it? And I guess it's also trying to weigh up when to tell them because like mm-hmm. you don't want to tell a six year old and I don't think anyone suggests no. to tell a six year old oh no you not can't do that and crush their dreams yeah but maybe if you've got a 12 year old who 12, 13, 14 year old who you know isn't going to grow much more than his 5 mm. foot 10 frame that he's in at the minute and he's thinking he might be a 6 foot 7 beast yeah do you then I think again I'll go back to in from my opinion, up until they're 12, 13, probably even 14, they should be playing that sport because that's what they like doing. It's not because they want to become a professional at it, but or it could be that as well, but it's because they love playing your basketball, rugby, football, whatever the sport is. So at that point, I don't think you probably need to tell them at 12 years old that it's probably not worth playing this because you're not going to be, or you're not going to fit the demands um, just because that's what they love at that moment in time and let them in, do what they enjoy. Um but then I guess when it comes more to that, probably 12, 13's age, then you might have to be a bit more real in terms of if they're saying to you, look, I want to be a professional basketball player and they're predicted five, six or whatever it is, then you might have to just have that conversation of that's fine. Like if you want to be a basketball player, you go for it. But just bear in mind, you'd be the smallest ever, ba- or, you know what I mean? The smallest kind of, you have to be electric, quick and hit a three pointer from wherever, <laughs> wherever on the court. That's what you need to do. Um, so the, there is, yeah, it's really tough because even saying that, leaving it to 12, 13 to drop out of that sport and play a different one, it'll be hard to pick it up from there, I guess. Um, which is why I always go back to from that age, they should be playing every sport just so when they come to that 14, 15 or whatever age it is that they start specialising, they've got all these tools, all these movements, all these skills that they're in the best position to go for whatever suits them, really. I know, obviously, the multi-sport aspect seems like it's come across more and more. Yeah. I think it's only going to benefit probably more sports as well. You might get, for example, some kids that realise actually football's not for me and they might go and be a great player yeah. for rugby. 100%, yeah. Kicking's unbelievable and movement patterns are decent. Mm-hmm. Maybe, unlike most footballers, they like having a bit of a ruck. Yeah, that, that's the thing though. Like, even the players I work with, nines right to 13, there's some players I look at and I think, God, you would be a great like you just said, fly half or scrum half, or I could see them get lifting somebody in a line out or being good at hockey, just just from the way they move. Or when we play the multi-sport, they're really good at it or their their skills just fit into something else. That doesn't mean they're not going to be a footballer or good at football. It just, it just means that you can see all those benefits paying off from so many different aspects, really. Okay, so... Something that I've noticed more and more over the last few years is when you go on coaching conferences or coaching courses and stuff like that, there seems to be a far more 
um, vocal discussion around SNC considerations of mm-hmm. sessions. Yeah. Um, demands we put on kids or demands we put on players, all that kind of stuff. From a strength conditioning perspective, mm-hmm. how do you guys feel like the integration between departments? Uh, yeah, I think again, rewinding four or five years to now is a massive difference in terms of um, the considerations. I can remember being in conversations when I started probably five years ago where this would be the session, these timings or pitch sizes will be plucked out the air, or depending on how many players we got turning up, or um, they didn't play well on the Saturday, so we're going to beast them today when actually that's not the right thing for them because they've had a big week the week before. Um, whereas now, I, I think, well, I'm, I think it's fair to say every session that I'm involved in now has got that consideration behind it, whether it's, um, yeah, what's their training load like, how much they do last week, what we actually preparing for this week, um, how does this session look within today, how does today look within the week. It's, yeah, I think all those considerations are there. And that'll be little things from how long, the games or the drill should be, um, their rest periods, um, different positions. So, for example, if you're doing a drill where it's crossing and finishing, just make sure it's varied so it's not the same person crossing off their right or left foot. So they're hitting in 50 balls and then there's one guy sprinting back and forth, heading it, it's mixing that up. Um, so, yeah, I think that those considerations are there. There's probably still areas that we could improve in terms of maybe if the s guys weren't there, would that control still stay over the session, if that makes sense? In terms of, would we let it run too long, perhaps, or would those players rotate? Um, probably still areas we could improve, but yeah, I think we're in a good place. It's interesting when you say in terms of duration of sessions. Mm-hmm. So, from your perspective, what would an ideal? I guess it's dependent on where yeah. you are in the week and all that type of stuff. Yeah. But say we're on a, I don't know, two days before a game. So we've got a game on Saturday, we're on mm-hmm. a Thursday session. What type of duration and intensity are you looking at for that type of session? I'd say just very generally, that would be your low to moderate session. So hopefully the day before and the day before, quite big hits, or you're hoping for some physical compensation from the day before that benefits you on that Saturday. But I'd probably look at that match day minus two as your technical team-based shape stuff, low to moderate intensity. There's no reason why you couldn't do your small-sided games at the end. Um, but yeah, you're really just making sure they're in a position where they're prepared and ready for that Saturday. Um, what I'd say is when talking about the younger age groups, I don't even think that matters um, because we're not playing that weekend for to win. It's Each training session and game is as important for the development. It doesn't really need to be um, structured in that way. So for example, with the 9s, 10s, 11s, let's say they train on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a game on Saturday. Of course, you're not going to go mental on that Friday, but at the same time, that still needs to have benefits to that session. You're not going to just do team shape with a nine-year-old on a Friday because you've got a game Saturday because physical adaptation, they're fine to play that game on the Saturday. Um, whereas with the older lads, you probably do need to prepare that they're not fatigued and they're ready to go, yeah. Do you think that those younger age groups, you can develop like durability and stuff for as they get older? Yeah, I think in terms of like aerobic capacity and stuff, that's quite linear with as the the players grow up. So as the body size gets bigger, lungs get bigger, aerobically they be able to fend better as they grow up. So I would never really, with the younger age groups, care is probably the wrong word, but I wouldn't make them run for the sake of running. Everything would need its purpose in terms of 
whether it's I've said it loads, but a skill development or movement or tactical or uh, technical. Um, it might be a fitness hit within that, but I don't think they should ever really run in for the sake of running, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I wouldn't say yeah. run in terms of that. I was looking more in terms of like injury prevention and stuff. Mm. Do you think by, again, loading them with a variety of different multi-sports yeah. um, and doing a lot at a young age, that would be different so not overloading for example football yeah naturally you get very tight hamstrings yeah very large quads if they were to do a lot of different sports to so say you go just for fun alongside they're going to do karate or swimming and stuff, yeah. different muscle groups do you think that by doing that from maybe nine all the way through to 12s and then when they're starting to obviously go through puberty and stuff yeah. do you think that gives them a better base physically yeah just a really simple one would be so we do dodgeball with them and we do let's say rugby sevens if you think about extensive rugby sevens is you might be running the whole length of the pitch or recovering the whole length of the pitch it's quite uh, it's quite a blow whereas then you play dodgeball it's a completely different fitness in terms of you're never going to move more than two yards but you're constant it's like throwing a ball dodging getting back up to your feet back to the floor you're working probably as hard in both but completely different energy systems so just by two examples there is ways that you're developing that your energy systems as you're growing up, like you said, with the multi-sports. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I think we all want players that obviously aren't going to be injured mm. or get fatigued as much. We're trying to figure out what the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, whilst obviously wanting them to play as well. Yeah. You don't want them to, um, yeah, you want them to play in games and we want to not mm-hmm. beast them, but you want them to be yeah. durable. And the guess is if if there's is there anything we can do at those young ages so that durability issues as they get older. Yeah, I'd say it's less repeated um less repeated movements in terms of so let's talk really simply, if there was a wall and a player was kicking the ball against the wall and all he was working on was his right foot and just kept kicking the ball with that right foot, he's gonna get fatigued in that muscle and there's gonna be adaptations in that muscle that might not be that specific. Because never in a game would you just kick, 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 kick. Um, so I'd say take away just those repetitive kind of actions um, and just add it with variety so it could be a kick into a forward roll cartwheel rugby throw kick again so there's variety to it it's kicking from maybe a different angle but you've got loads of different stuff in between so that would be my key so in terms of making it as I get older making it like position specific Mm -hmm. what would that look like so if we look at modern day games for example fullbacks are basically wingers yeah Carl Walker Andrew Mm -hmm. Robertson they're they're basically wingers up and down Mm -hmm. the the distance that they cover is incredible Um, you look at your strikers and stuff they're now being asked to press yeah a lot more aggressively than they would have done in in distance in years gone past Um, trying to make stuff more specific yeah how would you go about setting up like a and c session so people are getting the hits of what they need because obviously i'd imagine yeah. that there's a lot of differences between your center half and your right back in terms yeah. of what they need so we we have players that are like you said you, you might have a session where it's just your center backs and that doesn't mean it has to be s and c um coaches taking that it could be a football coach with an s and c coach this is what the football coach wants to get out of it maybe it's heading um, so then the SNC would design the drill around specific movements for that player. So whether it's backpedaling into a forward run, header, um, it's just about getting those distances accurate. It's about getting the actual time of doing it accurate. 
how worst case scenario in a game, how many times are they going to have to do that within a short space of time? So maybe it's four headers because the other team just play long balls, like within the space of two minutes, maybe it's one, and then they've got some technical practice in between. Um, yeah, I guess trying to get as far away from just doing S&C for S&C because at the end of the day, at that age, they need to be good at football. So it's how can you integrate that in with the coach, I suppose, is the best kind of practice. Yeah, because it's interesting because the way that I probably, I did it when I used to play would be if you're a fullback, for example, and like you're crossing and finishing, example, is a good one. Mm. You'd run from maybe the halfway line Going across it, in. drop back, you've go got again. one set rest, and then you go yeah. in again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's repetitive. Yeah. However, I did feel fit from doing yeah. it. Yeah, I, I think you will, but you will definitely get your fitness benefits from doing that 100%. But the amount of times like things like that get done, and then the player will come in, like, oh my, or the next day, my groin's really sore, or the inside of my leg hurts because. Perhaps his right foot crossing and he's done 20 of them, hasn't done any of his left, because that's specific to what he needs to work on. That's fine. He might have got better at it and he might have got fitter, but is it realistic to the game? Just in terms of you're probably not going to get 20, 30 crosses in a game. You might get three or four. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a tough one because you, you get better at what you do, but then if you do too much, you might hurt yourself. So would you base your distances and your reps or that type of offers statistics from like the first team games in terms of where they're aspiring to be or in terms of where um, you want to be for that age group or do you collect over multiple years? To get yeah, I think we've got a lot of data on them right now in the moment. So um, we probably designed it around that player himself. So it might be that his characteristics lead that he gets six crosses a half. So then it could be a drill that, and obviously you wouldn't span it over 45 minutes because you'd, you'd be wasting time. But it could be that it is a cross. The aim is six good crosses within the set. Then you're into a little technical drill or technical practice, or you have a discussion with a coach or somebody about it, or there's a recovery run um, just to break it up. But I think, yeah, going back to just doing cross, like a cross back, another cross back, I think it loses that kind of game realistic that's about it, really. So how do you find that technologies assisted you in that endeavor? Because I guess the things like GPS and stuff yeah, a bit of a godsend to figure out how... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, with my age groups, don't use GPS, um, but I'm aware of the guys that are wearing it from 14, 15, 16s. The biggest thing I take from it, and I don't use it day by day, but is kind of like that return to play, so injured players you know their stats or you know what they kind of cover in a game meters per second or you know what speed is their top speed, for example. So you know what you're building back to. Um, and it's also really useful as a monitoring tool as well. So if a player is way below the other guys in the training session, it's a conversation with the coach of, was this session not designed um, well enough for this player because he's covered, let's just say, 200 meters compared to the others is 2,000 because uh, he might have just been that centimeter that's just rotating. She's getting a different fitness hit. Um, so that's where it can be really useful. Or is it just, there's something wrong with that player and we need to have a discussion with him because for some reason he didn't want to run today. Um, so again, without context, the numbers mean nothing, but it can definitely probe conversation to a coach or a psych department or the player in terms of... Do the older guys get like live information from the GPS and stuff? Or is it always subsequent? So um, as far they do as I, a top-up? Yeah. So if they got that live data that they go, right, actually... He is 
1800 down, we need him to stay um, extra. I'd say no. I'm not sure what the first team and 18s do, but in terms of 16s, 15s, we don't have live data. Um, but I think we need to be careful in terms of... Um, I don't think we'd ever prescribe a number of distance. Um, we might have time, duration, uh, intensity score, or like an RPE, which is a player's perceived exertion, basically. So how hard did you find that session? Um, we'd have that as a name. But I think we need to be careful in terms of if we said where, let's say, 1,000 metres down, there could be a reason for that in terms of he's still giving his 100% today. He just didn't ha- didn't have that in it. So if we then make him do that 1,000, maybe that tips him over the edge. Um, so I'm very much a believer of if that player can... if As long as that player does 100% of what he can today... We don't worry about the numbers because he's given his 100% today, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess for you guys, from the sound of what you're saying, you're moving away from just being in the gym and doing gym-based stuff and trying to be more pitch side integrated into sessions. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. In terms of S&C as a whole? Um, yeah, I think it, it kind of depends. What, like you, There's going to be times where you're going to need to be in the gym if you're adding load or uh, certain equipment or stuff that you need to do um but i would say you're right in the regard of we are trying to make it more specific to the game so we're not anymore just squatting for the sake of squatting if even if we're in the gym can we do a movement that is more um relevant to the muscle action or the direction of uh the action um and yeah more sport specific so it's not just squatting for the sake of squatting it might be a step up with a drive because that's what sprinting looks like or it might be yeah a squat but not with the bar there's variation to it because when you land from a header it's not a perfect up and down it's you might have more weight on your left more weight on your right um so i'd say in general we are trying to get more looking exercises looking like football um but with that being said you you will also need your strength movements to un- underpin everything so you will still squat probably um but yeah in terms of the on on field stuff like i said trying to integrate with the coach more um the agility, speed sessions we do, making it look more like football. And at the end of the day, it's all about player buy-in. So if you say to a player this week, we're in the gym for an hour on pitch for two hours, they'll be happy with that rather than we're in the gym for two or three hours. We're not on pitch. So there's more buy-in outside of the players as well, I guess. Okay, so this is something we've had a discussion about before. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the weight vests yep. during games. So one of the... Th- things that I've said was adaptation of body obviously happens mm-hmm. you, you see mental uh, weightlifters and stuff we go and squat and up yep. with Joshua I said I appreciate that you don't want to be putting excess load through joints and stuff yep. but is there a way you could have say if you've got your Under Armour leggings on um, and Under Armour top on by adding a little bit maybe half a kilogram spread out across those major muscle groups and stuff to replicate extra weight, which then gets the adaptations in the muscles that you want. And you said that is not a good idea. Yeah, I, I'm personally against that idea just from the fact of, even if we're out, like it's hard to say without knowing specifics, but say we're adding like 0.25 or half a kg to four, five, six locations to the body, I have to say, I'm one of our older people here. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, not get, yeah, kids. Yeah. So obviously, um, I'm talking about under 18. Yeah. I, I still think there is, especially in a sport that is so variable as football in terms of the rotations, the movements, the jumping, the kicking, this, 
you talk about every plane of movement or every axis is is being exploited. Um, I think it's a lot more risk than reward. Like I get what you're saying in terms of if you sprint in a straight line with a little bit of added weight uh, distributed of your body, you might have a adaptation where if you train with that for a period of time and you took it off, there could be something there. Um, but as a one-off thing, in, first of all, as a one-off thing, I don't think it'd make any difference at all. It'd mm. probably just put that player more at injury risk for that session. And with a contact sport that's got so much variance in it, I yeah, I can't see a, I can't see how it would help because you you can't actually control the. You'd never have control of the amount of times they're turning or the amount of times they're running in a certain direction. Um, yeah, so I think the so risk is it not the, essentially the same as just having like a good Christmas. Yeah, they would have put a little bit of weight on. Yeah, I and think, then we're still able to play. Would it not be the same principle as that? I don't think so. Just in respect of when you do, let's say, have a good Christmas, it is. It's not a case of, let's say, five kilograms. It's not a case of dropping five kilograms on them. It'll be 0.1, like, and your body adapts quickly to that. And you've got that 24-7. Whereas, let's say we're training for two hours or an hour and a half. Going from, let's say, academy player, 70 kg to 75 in the space of one second, putting that suit or whatever it is on, to then train, to then take it off, and then... The other 22 hours of the day, you haven't got it. I think it's quite different in that regard of your body's not used to what you're, you've got on for that session. So what about if you work for 24 hours a day? It got, or you had like two suits, one for during training. And yeah. Um, if you had it on for 20, So say it was 0.2. So say we, we did this over a, a three-month period. So mm-hmm. the first two weeks, 0.1. Next one, 0.2. Yeah. And every two weeks, we increase the suit by... Yeah, my honest answer would be I'm not sure. I think, again, you'd have to question the benefits of it um, in terms of you may as well just make your player heavier, I guess, or make him put on muscle mass for that reason. Um, but I think when you take it off at the end, I don't know if there'll be that adaptation there. I The answer is I don't know, but I can't see. I, I think there's better ways or other ways to strengthen or... Make your players quicker, stronger, powerful. Uh, that would be your, yeah, your, depending on what age you're talking again, let's t- talk like older academy players. Um, that would be your strength sessions, your gym stuff, your on-field training, making it specific to that player. Um, yeah, I could probably guarantee through a four, four, five, six-week training block of a planned strength um schedule you get more adaptations than a weight vest or a weight suit or something to that regard i just think there's so much risk there with um i guess you're never gonna perfectly distribute it over the body and like you said in your first point the joints the biomechanics the cutting act like even little details like so this is quite a good example the way that a play would cut so change direction, for example, like a really plain, let's say a 30-degree cut, a really simple one. The angle at which your body is used to at 60 kilograms, if the body went straight into that pattern which is used to with 65 on them, there could be a big injury risk there in terms of rolling an ankle or uh, your biomechanics is not used to that weight. Um, so I think that's where the risk really outweighs any reward. Sorry. 
No, no, no. I'd be really interested to see if someone did it as like a research project. Yeah. Because it'd be interesting to see if there were any adaptations, if there were better figures. Like, you go back to old school things of people used to wear ankle weights and stuff like yeah. that. I remember that. I remember when people trying to lose weight, they used to train with bin bags on. Mm. And, like, those are mental old Yeah, school. I think in terms of, like, if you're less like general population, you would expend way more energy and calories would, the calories expended would go up. So if, you, if you're looking to lose weight or get uh, generally fitter, then it would work. Like, your heart would be working more 24-7 if you're wearing that, that vest or that suit. But in terms of specific football adaptations I can't really see that so in terms of um, interest in other sports do you have any like, outside interest in any other sports that you um, yeah uh, in terms of play I don't really play much anymore but um, like I said I've done a little bit with Gloucester rugby and I love watching rugby um, tennis massive fan of it I've never worked in it I would be clueless going into that role but I think it's something where I would learn a lot probably about it obviously with your rugby and stuff is that mm. from your background from growing up as I'm uh, sure yeah. you here from Wales I'm Welsh that, so yeah. yeah in school we had a choice in be of rugby or rugby so whereabouts in Wales did you grow up uh, Port Albert oh, okay. yeah lovely area yeah it actually is people, a lot of people drive you either see Port Albert from driving to Swansea and driving through it and thinking oh god look that steel works but it's actually a really nice area yeah like, I love it so when when you were growing up, was it just you? Or was it you got siblings and stuff? Like uh, that? little sister, yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. Older, older brother. Big bro. Okay, so playing sport and stuff growing up, what? Yeah, I think when what's quite a powerful tool in terms of when we're planning stuff now and like we're talking about is it multi-sport, is it strength-based, is it sport-specific, is like reflecting on what you did as a kid so when i look back to me i was football and football like there was and rugby in school but not to a degree where i could probably class it as okay i could probably class it as one other sport but i never played tennis never played basketball never played never did no fighting or combat or parkour and then on reflection at me growing up i was quite linear quite um these are the movements i could do and I struggled with other stuff in terms of if I fell over, I'd fall over one way. I wouldn't bounce or roll or um, flick back up like people that would do in gymnastics or dance as well would, as well could do. Um, so I think that's quite a powerful thing is actually reflecting on what can I do and what did I do as a kid. Um, so that's why I'm so big on the multi-sports. Because I remember my friends that did, I'd be like, God, you're going from football to gymnastics now. Like, you must be mad. Go back and play more football. But then when they got pushed over on the weekend, they'd roll and be back on their feet on the ball before, like me or other people. So, yeah. So, was that throughout the childhood, mainly football? Yeah, I was I was in the... Well, it wasn't an academy. It was Centre of Excellence at the time and I think went into academy when I left. But I was with Swansea from 9 to 16. Um, similar to, like, the kind of pattern I work with. It wasn't as full-on in terms of hours and sessions. It was probably three training nights a week, game on the weekend. So, quite similar. Um, but apart from that, I can't remember doing any sports. Like I would swim, but nothing in between. Or yeah. So were you a Swansea fan as well? Yeah, yeah, Swansea okay. fan. So how have you found obviously playing for a team that you supported? Imagine you're quite good. How have you found their progression as a club? Because obviously, I know at the minute isn't the greatest. Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm so when I say Swansea fan, I was a, Swansea in my localist team. But I'm a Liverpool fan. So the last few seasons I've been out of touch with not because I'm not living there. 
yeah. in terms of like game by game how they're getting on. Obviously, I keep an eye out for the score, and it's quite cool now because there's players within that team that were year groups below me, above me, that are now actually in the team. So that's quite a cool thing to look at. Um, but yeah, as a club, I can really tell you well if they're in a good or bad position, apart from where they, they are in the leagues. To be honest, yeah. yeah. I've got, I always find it interesting, like obviously. You cross paths with people from different clubs and stuff. Mm. Swansea was always one when we used to play, and I was surprised at how good they were, how mm. quickly, because they kind of came up through the leagues very, yeah. very quick. And the progression of the club itself, you go and see their facilities were really, really good. Yeah. Um, I think they're quite lucky as well in that if you take English clubs, for example, or even the London clubs, there's so many clubs in that area, you're fighting for players. Apart from Swansea and Cardiff, where they will have a crossover in the players they pick up. If you go west of Swansea or east of Cardiff, they're there, ask their players because there's no other competition. Or you'll have your um, Clenethley or Port Albert or your Welsh League clubs. But if Swansea or Cardiff come, you're going to go there. Like they're, they're your options. So they've got that probably advantage that many English clubs don't because you've got like a Bournemouth or a Exeter or a Portsmouth on your doorstep kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Because the only clubs have got that ones are right away. It's just someone like Plymouth. Yeah. Plymouth have got that, but then Plymouth have got, they got the, yeah. two hour journey to yeah. get to any, any other teams that play against. Um, all that type of stuff. So obviously at 16, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you didn't get offered a scholarship. No, but then I did at Hereford United for League Two at the time. Okay. So I moved to Hereford, was there for two years. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, so my first year, things were, I was flying, I was doing well. Um, yeah, floating about with the first team. They then got relegated at the end of that season to conference. Uh, yeah, and the club were financially in a terrible place. And it actually worked out that when I left, so I didn't get anything at 18, they actually went into administration and the club folded and the club was no more. So it wasn't, wasn't a great time at the club, no. But again, this great reflection on working in Premier League football now or Premier League academies now in terms of how different it is. So our players or players within, say, Cat 1, Cat 2 academies, the stuff they get or the facilities they get, we have to bear in mind that there are players within those lower league clubs that are fighting every day just to train or play, that things aren't handed to them. So there's that massive like social dynamic to it as well in terms of what struggles the players have to deal with. Do you think we prepare our lads for that? So if you look at, say, for example, a lad like you at 16, mm. say um, he's at Arsenal and doesn't get offered anything at Arsenal, do you think as the your cat ones and stuff prepare the players well enough to go, actually, this is the reality of going to a, a Hereford or something? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's hard to really... I guess it'd be hard for me to answer that, but I'd say... The obvious is if you come out of, like you said, Arsenal, you've got a good chance of going Championship League 1, League 2. Whereas if you come out of a Hereford when they're League 2 conference, realistically, you're not going to go up. So that you're going down further. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's case by case. Different players have their strengths and upbringings and stuff. So I'm not, I'm not too sure it's on that. It's interesting. I was on a course recently and they were talking about where the majority of England's defenders have come from. Yeah. So if you look at um, so you've got John Pickford, Harry Maguire, John Stones, Kyle Walker. Two of them are from Sheffield United. One from Barnsley, um, and I can't remember where Pickford came from. Pickford was another 
Yeah. Another team. So we're talking about uh, like the England DNA in terms of how they identify players and whatnot. And some of the people in the room were saying the in possession stuff, probably all your top teams will be yeah. able to do. So your Man Cities, your Chelsea's, your Southampton's, your Tottenham's, your Man United. Going to be great on the ball. Mm-hmm. Going to be really, really good at that side of the game. Because yeah. in games, the majority of the time, they're going to have the ball. Yeah. Whereas if you have your other side of the game, which is you're being really aggressive, being really physical, pressing, pressing yeah. tackling, all that type of stuff, particularly for your back players, that's probably not going to come from your top teams because they're not having to deal with crosses yeah. that often. They're dealing with it half the amount of time. So it's interesting. I think it, it, I think if you looked at lower teams who you play against, I think their defenders are probably better technically at defending mm-hmm. than our older ones are. Because they do it more, yeah. Because they do it more. So it then makes you go, look at it and go, well, how are we preparing? Yeah, yeah. How are we preparing kids for that? Which I'd imagine is probably quite a big culture shock for the lads. If, like you said, from Arsenal, so you're probably okay if you were a QPR yourself. Then going down, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of a drop off no. for you to go. Yeah. Um, in terms of places to go, but yeah. you're going to do a hell of a lot more defending than you would have been. Yeah, because I think that's where I struggled. Because I was obviously not the biggest, got a small guy, and I was quite technical. So when I went from that, Swansea were always known that at that point to be like a mini Arsenal, like played nice football. That suited me. But I went to a Hereford League Two conference side. I needed somebody that could head it, hook it, and put it in the channels and fight. I didn't have a chance because I was going up against men. So that's quite a simple way of putting it. Really, yeah, is you're probably not. Uh, prepared for that environment that you're going into. I think also, and this is probably something you'll be able to take over a bit more, the physicality mm-hmm. of an under-18 going to men's football was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, obviously, the older, uh, the higher clubs, you have the under-23s league, where they're able to develop yeah. a little bit more and physically, I think, can gain a little bit of weight. And I call it man weight a little bit. If yeah, you're yeah. from 18 to 23, you put yeah. a bit of man weight. Yeah, you do. Teams that are a little bit lower down can't afford that 23s team, so have to go yeah. 18s, and then you either you're in the men's team or you're not. Yeah. So in terms of the physical development over that period, what what things like, could you take into consideration for those? Yeah, I think one thing to consider is within that under 18s, so we're talking uh, under 18s and 17s players together. In that is going back to the maturation stuff. You might have you will have players in there that. They could potentially be the best player, but they're not gonna be able to step up because they're not they're not fully mature, they're not fully grown into their body yet. When would that happen on average? On average sixteen, seventeen, I guess, is okay. when they're fully done. Um that's just plucking the number out of the air to be honest. Because there could be players at eighteen that are still not, not ready. There'll be players at fifteen that are fully developed, which which you see in Academy football. Um I was good with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was real, I've been like this height since like year nine, so mm. probably yeah. really unsure. The only good thing was in the academy I was in, and then when I played grassroots football, I always played up, mm. so I was up a year constantly. Yeah, but I also think that had its negative impact because mm. I think that psychologically and skill wise, I probably wasn't as comfortable on the ball because I'm constantly yep. having to cope. Yeah. When you're constantly playing a year up and probably playing against if sort of a November board. Let's say I was six months more developed, that would take me to a, I don't know, April time, something like that. 
I'm still giving away six months. Yeah. And if I'm playing someone else who's just saying that's a year, mm. you constantly have to cope with it without ever like excelling. Yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes it would have probably have done me good to play my own age group and go to yeah. try and dribble everyone, try and run everyone. Yeah. Because I was really good at, I did well at reading the game and dealing with like defensive stuff. But then mm. technical stuff, I didn't work on at a young age because I was yeah. constantly just having to cope and didn't feel like I was going to be able to try hook turn mm. or try and pan at someone or something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, so yeah, you did, sorry, that's yeah. much uh, yeah. you do get. And then what else you need to consider in terms of like, if you can within that under 18s team, like if you've got players that you think are ready to play men's football, start organising games against men's teams. So it could be your under 18s versus senior team at the lower leagues, just so you've got players experienced or they understand the standard or the physicality or the way the game is of those older players. And then again, I guess the third option would be putting players on loan to maybe lesser league clubs, but senior football. So again, they're coming up against the same physicality, the same kind of structure of games, um, but maybe they're not technically as good at that level, so they, they can still get away with being younger. I think psycho- psychological as well. Mm. Like you get people that think aren't particularly the nicest. Oh, yeah. You know, they're like horrible chucking elbows yeah. and stuff around. Psychologically, obviously, you don't want to get the kid hurt, but mm. have to, knowing that they're going to deal with that a little bit yeah. and be able to cope with that. You look at Tyron Minks, mm-hmm. um, who was around in this region and actually tried to recruit him to Bath. Yeah. Um, Stuff with Ibrahimovic and that—he's probably used to getting kicked about at men's football. He's not oh, yeah. before he went to Ipswich, mm-hmm. so he's got that little side to him where he's going, oh, "Okay, I know, I you know what's coming." It's that experience, yeah. But then I think also as a manager or a coach, just appreciate that within those lower league clubs, if you're going to put an 18-year-old into that first team, be aware that that could happen. He might go in there completely sink because it's his first experience of men's football and it's not what he's used to. Um, so it's just having that pre- appreciation for who that player is and how well they're going to cope with that change of dynamic. So, obviously, after you left Hurricane, I know you went to Hartford. Yep. How was your time there? Yeah, good. Uh, I think that's where the football started slowing down, so I focused on my studies and pubs more than playing football. Um, but yeah, it was, it was it was a good time. That's where I first came to work within football, first came to work within rugby in SNC and yeah, man look back. So what why did you decide to go to SNC? I assume at that point it wasn't like a goal to go, oh yeah, I'm gonna stop playing football. Yeah, I think my the two reasons I went into SNC was one, a lot of my mates were going into coaching and I could see how many people were coaching and I thought that's gonna be such a competitive place. Um I wanna try something different and two Thinking back to my times in when I was in an academy at 18s or 16s, 14s younger, this new concept of FSC was very new. Like I never had that in terms of uh, multi-sports or a fitness coach, in inverted commas, or um, sessions with uh, intensities that were planned. I this was That was very new to me, so that was something I wanted to look into. Um, and yeah, it's been great kind of reflecting back to, like I said earlier, reflecting back to my upbringing in football compared to the lads now, how different it is. Um, but that's kind of what drove me there in terms of essence of, I never had that, so what is it? And learn more about it. So what type of people did you work with at Hartbury or learn under Hartbury? Well, in terms of like lecturers and stuff? Yeah. Or, yeah, so um, I think Ben Drury, that is now head of the master's course, 
Um, he worked there, but we also had lecturers like um, James McCarran that was at Seattle Sounders. He's now at Man City. He's been at the FA. Um, there were some other guys that are now in cricket. There's some in rugby. Um, it's quite a nice proportion. Um, yeah, lecturers from different sports, really. Um, but yeah. What type of things would you have worked on? In- Our modules were everything from recovery to return to play. Um, yeah, injury management, uh, periodizing for, like in team sports, um, nutrition, just kind of take every kind of box in that sport science. So quite relative to a lot of stuff yeah. you do. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say it was really relevant to my job, but at the same time, if I didn't do a placement on top of it, um, it really helped that I did a placement between my second and third year and then went back to my third year because I knew what the industry was like. Um, so my advice would be to any student, if you're going to do it, you've got to get a placement in there because you'll network, you make friends with people that's actually working and in that last year, you've got something to relate it to because if you just do three years on the bounce without experience, you don't really have an idea of what the industry's like. Um, so, yeah. So I guess in, in football, see, particularly coaching stuff, we're constantly learning. I guess you learn new tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn new types of play. Look at Pep, for example. Everyone was fascinated by his in, but it's full back yeah. type of stuff. I guess from a strength conditioning point of view, you, obviously you can design sessions and take into consideration yeah. reps and all that type of stuff. But I guess research is quite mm-hmm. a big proportion of what you're delivering and stuff. So yeah. how do you keep up to date with all like, the latest research? And yeah, I think yeah, there's two key aspects. There's your experience and doing something doing it wrong and then making it better or experiencing what somebody else is doing whether that's another coach within your club or you go to a conference speak to people they do it that way so you change change your ways or reflect on your ways and there's also the research driven stuff so like for example i'm big on doing agility with our 13 year olds 12 year olds i went to a conference on the weekend that says actually um this paper coming out that um, shows that once they go to a peak height velocity, which is their big growth phase, um, their biomechanics, the way they move completely changes to a new way of moving, uh, sorry, a new way of decelerating um, within change of direction. So that's where it becomes really important. So now I'm reflecting on actually the research is saying that it's really important after they grow, should I be focused on it before? Um, so you've always got that debate. Like that's just one example. So that's the research driving kind of your thought processes then you always refer to your experience of actually, um, because of the way under-13s, 12s, 14s footballs looks, I still need to focus on it because it's a big part of their um, development or a big part of how they play on the on the weekend, which is ultimately what they're judged on. Um, so you always have that kind of research, experience, application kind of debate with yourself. Um, but that's where it's quite nice that you're always reflecting, always um, yeah, trying to improve what you've previously done. Do you ever, obviously everyone will have WhatsApp groups, do you have a WhatsApp group with your S&C stuff? Would you ever just chuck an article in? Yes, we've got got Megan Hill, that's a researcher at Bath Uni, working with us, so she can provide us with a lot of stuff, and we have Microsoft Teams on our computer, so we're always chatting on that in terms of, look at this, look at this graph, look at this, look what this person said, or stuff like that. Is there anything interesting that's come up recently that all of you have gone actually that changed our minds slightly than what we thought or is um, it it's probably been nothing groundbreaking at the moment I think it's just more that how big multi-sport is getting in terms of there's more there's more books being wrote on that right now like there's more 
Um, if you go on Twitter and look at the youth SNC conversations, I'd say over 50, 60, 70% of it is on multi-sport and the benefits of doing different stuff. So that's definitely the, uh, the focus right now is how we can um, affect PE or affect school sport that it is pushing our athletes on. Um, so yeah, I think that's the kind of the, the trend at the minute. I guess, yeah, it's, the research stuff's quite interesting mm-hmm. in terms of you, you don't know where stuff's going to go, like both in research, but also in terms of performance. Like before you say bubble, everyone was like, you've got to be a short, stocky mm-hmm. guy to be a sprinter. Yeah. And then he comes along quite gangly and stuff and kind of change the game to now it's different people now. In terms of for you, where do you see performance, like physical performance going, I guess particularly in football, I know that uh, stats are showing over the last 10 years the distances that people run are pretty much the same, the difference is it's just the intensity they do it at, so rather than there being like a meander jog or whatever, they're yeah. now sprinting those distances yeah. or um, you know, getting into shape quicker, so the actual distances aren't any more, it's just mm-hmm. the intensity. Where do you see like kind of physical performance going at the top end and yeah, I think what we've seen over the last probably 10 years is how important probably speed, strength, power's got in terms of your quick wingers or your front three that's able to repeatedly press or sprint past the fullback. Um, I guess I'll give you a really rubbish answer in terms of, I have no idea, in terms of the, with rule changes or how much sport has changed in the last 10 years, you can never really predict the future in terms of where it's going. Um, but I think physicality is always going to be a, a key aspect of it in terms of can you run quick, are you strong, or can you yeah defend yourself, can you attack somebody in regard of like dueling for the ball um, and that power aspect. But I don't think there's any way we could predict that you have to be um, six foot for this position or it'd be ideal if you're small for this position because we might have a there might come a day where the, your full backs need to be six foot for whatever reason or your center backs need to be technically unbelievable because there's a new offside rule. You know what I mean? There could be something completely curveball come in the future, but yeah, I can't predict. Okay. That's, uh, so, yeah, sorry for that no, rubbish no, no, answer. That's, but... that's a hard, hard question to answer. One of the things that I, I wanted to quiz you on, which... Again, it's something that you've mentioned. I haven't actually had a discussion with you about mm-hmm. this, but it's that um, players can get faster mm-hmm. as they go through puberty and stuff, mm-hmm. um, from being maybe slow to maybe quick. Now, I'll be honest, in my experience, this has never happened. Yeah. In terms of if you're an early maturer, I 100% see that you might go from appearing to be the fastest, but actually you get caught up a yep. little bit. But in terms of techniques to turn someone who isn't particularly quick and then, then become quick, I've never seen this. Now, I, my personal belief, and again, I haven't done extensive research on it, I want to use it a little bit, is that a lot of your characteristics physically, although they can be adapted, are also genetic. Agreed. Biological and stuff. Agreed. So how does that figure because I'm looking at him going Usain Bolt was always going to be quick it didn't matter if he was three foot two or six foot whatever mm-hmm. so how 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 does that just so then you say 
to me where actually you can make someone quicker than yeah I think when I say you can make you can I think you can make everybody quicker but then uh, everybody's got their ceiling so like you said genetics is a big factor um, body type or body size depending on the distance of that sprint or let's talk athletics wise like 100 meters 200 400 there'll be different body sizes that um, are beneficial for each of those um, but yeah you can make somebody slow in really simple terms you can make somebody slow less slow and you can make somebody fast faster but if your muscle fiber type is slow and your parents genetically wise you're, you're made to be slow you're not going to be using both so could, like, you, could you predict that so if you've got a fiber type of, in like a seven-year-old for example so we're saying you can kind of predict people from 12 onwards could you take a fiber sample from a nine or nine-year-old or whatever and go right he has fiber so actually he's probably going to be very explosive or... yeah i think ethically we wouldn't but you could and you could also, which is something I've actually been quite interested in recently, is a kind of parental questionnaire of what they actually did when they were when they were younger or before they had kids in terms of how many sports did they play, what sports, what were they good at. So, for example, if you've got a mum that was international netball and a dad that was international, let's say, goalkeeper, maybe there's some the muscle fibers that were genetically, they're quite good at jumping sports or they're quite powerful, for example. Um so that's something that could be quite interesting in terms of looking at what the parents, grandparents have done um, for that. But I think, going back to your point, yeah, genetics does play a big part. Like you said, Usain Bolt was going to be fast, whether he had a good, bad technique, whether he would have been world record holder, who knows. But yeah, I can't. Yeah. Okay, Definitely. I guess to finish this up, and I'm going to ask everyone, everyone this, um, best player that you've played with or against? Oh, good question. So I'm going to ask everyone this. Best player to play with. I'm going to say... And you've got to give the definition, got the reason why. Definition. I'm going to say, just because uh, we're talking about youth football, when I was younger, so like I said, I was a Swansea, Ben Davis of Spurs was okay. in the Yoga Boulder, and there was probably two or three occasions where I played a Yoga Boulder and played with him. At the time, I wouldn't have said he was the best player, but he was that classic... He would do everything everything good like you wouldn't make a mistake consistency 10 out of 10 and then yeah you look at him now and he's pretty much that in, in Premier League or Champions League or every place yeah. like does everything very well so yeah he'd probably be mine okay I'm a Spurs fan so, so yeah that's quite well suited that's yeah, quite well good. suited too. yeah now I appreciate your time and I'll keep questioning you about this uh, weight suit yeah <laughs> please don't <laughs> let's leave that one there <laughs> Right, cheers to that, TJ. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.